0: Hey tryhards, Ethan here. Before we get into the show today, I want to talk to you guys about Patreon. Patreon is a donation service, a monthly subscription service where you donate money to me to support the show, support uh, the growth of it, whether that means merchandise or more podcasts or other things of that nature, and I would really appreciate if you guys would be Willing and able to give just a little bit of whatever extra money you may have. Because while the show will always be free for everyone to listen, um, the way to make it isn't. And I'm in college, and things are expensive. So I'd appreciate any little amount that you're able to give. So thank you for donating, and thank you even more for listening. Hello, my name is Ethan Hewlin. Like you, I love a world that never stops moving. Also, like you, I have stories. These are my stories, the true stories of a tryhard. Welcome back to True Stories of a Tryhard. I'm Ethan Hewlin, and this week we are welcoming again another special guest. She is a Visiting assistant professor at the University of California, Santa Barbara. She is one of the most amazing people I've ever met because she is my aunt. Please welcome Dr. Tracy Connor. Tracy, thanks for joining me.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: So, uh, listeners, if you've been tuning in over the past month or so, I've been trying to amplify as many Black voices with my platform as I can. And Tracy has had quite a bit to say on social media, so I thought she would be a great person to have on. So Tracy, can you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself?
1: Sure. Well, I'm originally from Kansas and I grew up a black face in a white space um, and was very interested in my my black identity, um, but had to learn mostly through books and of course through my family, um, what it meant to be black in those spaces. And of course I was the token black friend for many, many of my white friends. So I, I feel like I've definitely lived an experience being an, an ambassador for Blackness, as many Black folks in white spaces can, can be. Um, I went to school to study linguistics. I'm specifically interested in African-American English, a dialect or language variety spoken by many, but not all African-Americans in the U.S. Um, and then went on to become a speech pathologist and to work with individuals who speak African-American English and helping them um, to be accurately identified um, as speech and language um, proficient or deficient, not based on their dialect, but based on their actual um, linguistic competency. So to sum that up, I'm interested in African-American English and its educational implications and how that relates to um, issues of social justice. So I mentioned the um, African-American English-speaking kids in in speech pathology. Um, It turns out that many Black kids are overrepresented in special education classes simply because they speak this dialect of English, African-American English. There's nothing wrong or deficient about this variety. It has set uh, rules, uh, sound rules, and grammar rules. However, because many of the test batteries prioritize standardized American English, what you might hear on the nightly news, um, a lot of these kids are being misdiagnosed as having a disorder when they just speak a dialect. So that's something that was very interesting to me um, as I studied Black language and um, its implications for making change in society.
0: Wonderful. That's actually something that I have um, recently come to learn about the African American Vernacular English because um, I never personally I never really viewed that as a, as a specific dialect. It was just a way that other people just spoke. It was a um, I don't know how to describe it. It was more of an individual dialect, like an idiosyncrasy almost. But um. My girlfriend, who's studying education, has um, done a lot of reading on on that, and she's uh, she shared some stuff with me, which has all been very interesting. So uh, if I recall correctly, you had a, a bit of a hard time getting your, um, your thesis for your doctorate through. Can you uh, tell listeners a little bit about that?
1: Oh, wow. You want the tea. <laughs> okay. Um, so if you want. You... <laughs> I went to a university where they had a history of studying African-American English, so that was helpful. And I had an advisor who studied that variety. Um, And then I also was working in complex structure syntax. And um, this is an area that not a lot of uh, Black linguists occupy. So um, the challenges related to finishing the dissertation, um, sometimes when I think back on it, it is a question of wh- what does it look like to amplify Black voices in spaces um, that traditionally don't amplify those voices? Um, what would it look like to use Black language to challenge um, kind of dominant assumptions about language? So, say there's a linguistic theory that is uh, really prevalent when you look look at a cluster of languages, say like standardized English, Japanese, or something like that. But then you bring a minority dialect, Black dialect into it, and it has something different to say. Um, What does that look like? Um, And In some ways, I felt like it was um, an important contribution to the field and also to justice. Um, But yeah, I I would chalk up a lot of the challenges to, again, being a Black face in a white space and a space where people just haven't encountered Black people before. And so the way they engage with Um, folks of color is, you know, based on their preconceived notions, you know, from maybe from movies or uh, maybe one interaction they had with um, a Black person. um, Because we're all swimming in the same society that tells us that, you know, Blackness in many ways is not appropriate. You know, um, Black hair um, can be deemed unprofessional. They just have begun to strip away rules that say you can't wear braids or you can't wear an Afro um, in certain, um, in certain professional milieus. So um, yeah, in a society where lots of things that are typically black are, are shunned, what does it look like to bring it into kind of intellectual pursuit?
0: What were the sort of challenges you faced growing up being the quote, token black friend?
1: That's a really good question. As I was growing up, of course, this was my only childhood experience. So I just assumed everyone was having this experience. But I did recognize that there were some times when people would gravitate towards me, want to befriend me. And it wasn't necessarily just for my meanness, it was for the um, exotic nature of who I was because I was, you know, unlike um, the other people. So I remember going to middle school, um, about to start a new school. And they had a black girl in the class, Portia. And but Portia left when I came, which was very interesting. And so now, now I was the new black girl in that space. And um, initially a lot of people wanted to hang out. Particularly, I remember uh, one girl's parents were going out of town and she came up to me and said, hey, I wanna stay at your house uh, over the weekend because my parents are going out of town. And I knew, that she wanted to stay at my house as like um, an ethnographic research project, if you will. Like, let's see how the Browns live, Um, which felt a little strange to me. So I didn't actually um, end up inviting her. Um, But beyond that, you know, I enjoyed some friendships, but realized in, in some ways people, sometimes people were just curious about Blackness and that's why they gravitated towards me. I think I'm kind of a cool person too play a lot of sports and dance and do things. So perhaps that was a part of it. Um, but that was always an underlying question. Sometimes.
0: How often would you say that the, um, that, how would the ratio of genuine friendship versus curiosity
1: pan out? Wow. Um, over the, span of my life. I mean, it's not uncommon for those things to merge, right? Racial curiosity, and um, and then you find that you really have a lot of common ground. So I would say I have some good friends now um, where that's the case, where I do recognize that, yeah, I'm kind of their entry to Black culture. Um, but, you know, we both share uh, knowledge and curiosities and things that you know, we both enjoy, so we're just in general friends. Um, I would say that sometimes, at least for me, one time in history in particular that showed me who those people are or were who were kind of adjacent for you know the curiosities um, was when Mike Brown and Trayvon Martin were kind of in the news for the brutality um, murder, I should say. Um, and at this time, I was in a white event evangelical church, and um, I had I had been welcomed with open arms. At that time, I was a you know a graduate student um, getting my PhD in linguistics, and so I was the I could say the quote unquote um, the good black friend, right? You know, I'm I speak kind of standardized variety. My culture is kind of similar to um, a lot of those you know, in white culture, because I grew up, you know, in white Kansas. Um, so yes, I was welcomed and encouraged to serve in all sorts of different places in the church. But there came a time when um, the brutality happening to my black brothers and sisters at Sandra Bland, um, it weighed on me heavily. And I was looking to, you know, my, some of my white friends to kind of process that with me or my, just my church friends, but most of them happened to be white. And it was at that point that I realized that some of them were very uncomfortable and had maybe never talked about race or explored bias. Um, A lot of, some of them felt like race was political. Um, So I think that's a a space where perhaps we were great friends, um, but that was just an area that was unexplored for them, which means that the depth of the relationship can only go so far Um, and it is really challenging to to find that some of that someone that you've you know shared a lot with um yeah might might be one to step away when presented with issues around race
0: believe it or not your brother was one of the first people to talk to me about that he and my mom showed me a video when i think was 14 or 15 um, about privilege. And that was kind of the first real experience that I had had with um, kind of examining the way I saw myself and the way I saw other people. I don't know who else seen this video, but there is an experiment. I forget who did it, but they had a bunch of people lined up all in a line. And someone would say, if you've never had to work a job to pay your parents' bills, take a step forward. If you, if you didn't have to buy your first car, take a step forward. And things like that. And eventually, a lot, of the, a lot of the white people had stepped quite a few feet forward. And the black people were several steps behind them. And that really kind of started opening my eyes and started kind of getting me, um, getting me thinking about my, like what my life has been like compared to those who don't look like me.
1: It's very interesting, given that you are or have, to some extent, shared your life with those who don't look like you. So not just my brother, but your your three sisters. Yep. So it's interesting to know that this video kind of contextualized maybe their experience for you in some kind of deeper way.
0: It really did because I up until that point had just said that these are my sisters. I didn't really think anything of it. Because I'd lived with them their whole lives and they were just they were just family to me. But as I looked further into it and talk to people around me I realized that not everybody sees them that way. Mm -hmm. Like the most I would get, well, the sometimes not all the time, but some, sometimes there'd be looks from people in public of confusion Mm -hmm. or even like daggers. Like people are staring daggers at us sometimes. And that, that's only my experience with this. I, I'm sure that this, is, this can be common for, uh, for, for black people what's considered white spaces. Like when we would go to the grocery store or the movies or other places like that.
1: I can imagine that would be challenging Um, So I'm glad that they have you as a big brother to just recognize that because I think the only thing worse than having a friend that is confused about how to support you, you know, as a person of color is to have, you know, a family member um, not take up for you, not be able to understand you or be curious about, you know, how you see the world.
0: Yeah, and, and honestly, that conversation didn't really start happening until they got older. Cause I don't really think they understood it either at the time.
1: Yeah. Cause so they're growing up in a similar kind of a similar space, although their space might be different now since y'all they have moved. Um, yeah. But one book that really helped me when I was growing up, I think I was your middle sister's age um, was this book called, um, why are all the black kids sitting together at, at the cafeteria table? Um, yeah,
0: I've I've heard of that book. It's
1: just, just a great book to begin that conversation with others, or even with yourself as a you know a black person in blackface in a white space, um to help you realize that oh some of the things that you are kind of perceiving but maybe people aren't talking about are actually real. I do remember one time, very poignantly, where I realized that. Um, I really had a lot of information, you know, about my personal experience that others weren't privy to necessarily. And um, and so even myself as being like a high schooler at the time, you know, you know, I could speak up for what my experience was as a black person. So I remember going to a, I think it was a just a talk on this. White gentleman was talking about, like, diversity and racism Um, in the the library. We were sitting next to the fireplace, and I was just so excited that somebody was going to comment on the Black experience, and people were going to be kind of let into this world in a, quote-unquote, academic sense. And he asked something like, you know, what are some of the topics or themes you think that might be really relevant um, to talk about differences related to, you know, Black and white? And I raised my hand and I was like, oh, hair. You know, that's, that's something that's very different that I think about a lot, um, the differences. And he was like, no, that's not one. <laughs> that's not one. And wow. I remember, right? <laughs> uh, I remember being so, like, com- at first confused and then, like, kind of deferring because he was, you know, quote, unquote, this expert. But something within me, like, maybe five minutes later was like, no, that was valid. And I feel, I feel like there was somebody who actually said, no, I, 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 think that's, it's important to amplify that voice. I'm not sure how that came about, but I do believe that, you know, it was reaffirmed by someone, which is encouraging. Um, but also, you know, just goes to show how much, you know, being like a young black face in a white space, you know, empowers you as a leader but also is confusing because you know people don't necessarily see you as a you know as a a leader see you as someone who is bringing this important you know perspective to the table even if you're young or you haven't gotten a phd in black studies or something like that
0: yeah yeah so um how did i'm speaking from my school experience my school, my high school specifically, was considered one of the most diverse schools in our district, which led to, you know, rival schools kind of looking down on us mm-hmm. because of that. Like, oh, Shawnee Mission South has, you know, too many potheads or things of that nature. Mm-hmm. But, but, in reality the a lot of my high school was still white there was like it was a, it was a mix of a bunch of different races. Um, there were other high schools in our district that are definitely more predominantly black or predominantly hispanic but and I can double check those numbers because honestly i don 't remember them off the top of my head but being exposed to those people in some way also opened my eyes to to other things. I, ma- I made friends with a few of them um, and that gave me some, some more insight into um, black culture that I tried to share with my sisters. Like there was a, a family down the street from us that um, there was a black family down the street from us, which we were good friends with. And, we tried to get together with them so that my sisters would have some some friends that looked like them
1: that's really powerful um because i know just even you know i have i grew up in a family a black family so i had that connection but going to school and seeing high schoolers or you know other black kids um was so impo- important to me um, and and having engagement with them um, because otherwise the only models i saw were were you know white and so to see somebody who looked like me doing things made me realize oh wow you know there is a space for me Mm. yeah
0: so back to what um you're talking about the african-american english earlier do you think that the education system needs to change so that way if students speak this language they can either learn it or write in it without being punished for it
1: that's a really great question. Um, I think one space where um, African American English is already being kind of taken up in a written form is like Twitter, like black Twitter mm-hmm. um, who is the end all be all of you know cultural commentary so I, I I love that as a you know a space for black voices um, and a space for black language. Um, And with respect to the education system, currently there's no systematic orthography um, written system for African-American English. And so, you know, as you see Black Twitter and other posts, you know, you're seeing people kind of use, you know, these characters to, you know, represent how things sound. um, And so they might be different. So the fact that there's no one systematic um, orthography means that it would be hard to teach it. Um, And most of the writing that we see is done in kind of standardized American English. So I think the main changes um, that one could see is having teachers and educators be more aware of the uh, linguistic patterns of African American English and also um, the cultural kind of underpinnings of the variety, how this language that kids come to school with, this is their home, this is their culture, this is their, you know, caregiver, this is, you know, this is their heart. Um, and so to embrace that as a means of communication, so in answering questions, not correcting quote unquote correcting grammar, um, but allowing students to use whatever they bring to the classroom to um, explore concepts. Um, and then even within writing, um, to To be careful about the purpose of the writing. So, if the purpose is just to convey ideas, using whatever types of orthographic conventions um, should be should be celebrated. So, if you're using African American English in in writing, and you know the goal is not to write something for a specific genre, like a um, an application, like personal statement. Although maybe there might be room for African American English. Um, But I say all that to say if educators were trained on the linguistic patterns, then um, kids would be able to find encouragement in their variety and not feel like it was something that was um, a deficit. So um, I was just reading um, an article talking about how many, you know, folks who speak African-American English might get a paperback with tons of red ink all throughout um, where maybe what they're doing is using a lot of, you know, grammatical or phonological kind of patterns of African-American English. So instead of this is wrong, correct this, which, you know, presupposes that their language is wrong. Instead of that, uh, if the teacher was more aware of the patterns of African-American English, um, this person could, you know, give them options. If they wanted the whole paper written in standardized American English, they could say, okay, oh, this is great. Yes. Habitual B is something that we use in African American English. Um, how might we translate this into standardized American English? Uh, are you fam- familiar with Habitual B?
0: I'm not. Can you uh, tell me a little bit more about that?
1: Sure. So something like um, she be running her mouth every time Jan comes over
0: okay okay i i've heard that i shouldn't know the name for it
1: yeah so it doesn't mean that she is currently running her mouth um it means that she is in the habit of running her mouth when john is there so um that's not something that has a direct translation i guess into standardized american english but something like um deletion of possession uh, possessives or um, not marking possessive with a marker so something like john hat I like john hat that's that's a pattern of african-american english and so you can imagine you know an english teacher who only knows about standardized american english going where's the you know apostrophe s and, mm-hmm. you know, wrong um, but what would it look like for them to understand that pattern and be able to um allow the student to be who they are and if they want the student to be you know bi-dialectal so to speak in this written form to give them the option in a way that doesn't paint their dialect as something deficient.
0: Listeners, that's where we're going to have to leave it for this week. Uh, Tracy and I talked for a while, so uh, tune in next week for the second part of this episode. And um, in the meantime, the best way to get the word out of podcasts Podcast is via word of mouth and social media. So please, please, please share this with your friends, share it on your social media, And if you post it in some way and tag me, you will get featured on the official podcast accounts. And please feel free to leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. I would very much appreciate it. My socials and tracys, as well as the podcast, will be in the description. Tune in next week for part two. So until then, this is Ethan Hewlin, signing off. Hello those of you who are listening after the outro music. This is a little special moment for those of you who have been thinking about joining the Patreon but haven't quite yet. Um, If you join the Patreon right now, all through the month of July, all the proceeds of your um, donations will go directly to The Trevor Project. So anyone who joins during the month of July, I'm extending pride into July by donating all my proceeds from Patreon to The Trevor Project. So please, if you would like, any little bit goes a long way. I'd like to keep this show going as long as I can so that way both I and you, listener, can gain more perspective and explore our own mental health. So if you would like to donate I would be very appreciative if not that's fine too but any little bit helps so thank you for donating and thank you even more for listening